Welcome to the Return to Truth podcast, defending the Bible's message on things people don't like to hear. I'm your host, Joshua Cretchen, BTH from Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. My hope is that through this resource you will grow in your confidence to explain and stand firm on what the Bible says when you are confronted by questions, doubts, and clever arguments. So now let's heed and join in the call to return to the truth. Hello and good morning, afternoon, or evening at whatever time you happen to be listening. This is episode four of the Return to Truth podcast. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, the month of June really just flew by. It's here and gone already. I still managed to get some good activities in though, such as my wife and I went camping with a couple friends just a couple weeks ago now, and while we got pretty much rained out towards the end of that trip, we did still manage to get some good game time in, and we also had a mini church service together, the four of us on that Sunday, and that was really edifying and encouraging. So yeah, June, it's been a month of both encouragements and uh, some disappointments, but uh, just continuing to press forward and seek God in the midst of it. And I'm hoping that I can also bring some edification and encouragement uh, to you today on this episode, which is dealing with the topic of shame. Now, I don't know what your personal thoughts are on shame, or perhaps what your personal experience with it is. But nevertheless, I do think that it's a quite important uh, topic to understand from a scriptural angle. I also think that just given that we are coming uh, to the end of what is called Pride Month around here, it's also an especially relevant topic. So yes, we may say that the opposite of pride could be humility, being humble. Shame is also very closely tied into these issues. But nevertheless, I do think as Christians and in the church, we have a tendency to just dismiss it. To think that shame is unfortunate when it comes up in our feelings, but we don't give it much thought beyond that. So with that in mind, where we'll be going today, and this could very well be a shorter episode, but nevertheless, I do think it will be helpful and important for you to listen to. Uh, We're going to deal with some definitions, of course, because defining our terms is always the first thing we want to do in these kinds of conversations. Uh, From there, we'll deal with some of the cultural elements that go along with this issue, because this is uh, inherently embedded in the various cultures around the world. And each culture will have a somewhat different view and different answer to the question of shame and its role. Then after that, we'll deal with, okay, now what are we going to do with the what the scripture has to say about shame, how it's used, how we should deal with it when we feel it, and things along those lines. And then we'll wrap up by kind of tying in with the inverse of shame we might feel despite it being something that God actually calls good, because sometimes we do have shame related to those things. So to begin, shame, at first we want to differentiate it from embarrassment. Of course, the two may go 
a hand in hand, and perhaps your image of shame is like embarrassment, your cheeks becoming flushed, and you starting to hang your head and hide your face from the people around you. But I would say that em- embarrassment is just a little bit more over trivial things. So perhaps you gave a really awkward answer in class, and now you wish people would just uh, take the attention off you, move on, start thinking about something else than what you said. Whereas shame, I would say, is a little more hefty. It's more somber in terms of the issue that brings on shame. And so many dictionaries will define shame as a self-conscious emotion. And so it is this feeling that you have uh, inside you. So when you perceive that there is uh, disappointment in others, Regarding you, that could very well be a thing that causes this emotion to rise up. Uh, But I would also add that shame is caused in a public scene through dishonor. So when you do something to dishonor someone and then it's pointed out. So despite being a self-conscious emotion, it doesn't uh, necessarily automatically prick your conscience. Shame maybe something that something that isn't felt until your action is exposed. And so to tie it all together, shame, I would say, is a somber, self-conscious emotion that is caused through a public scene by dishonor. Now, perhaps even with that definition in mind, these terms of shame and honor are still unfamiliar to you, and I would argue that That is greatly due to the culture we live in. Because here in uh, North America and in much of the Western world, the way our culture works is, well, first of all, it's individualistic rather than collective. We have an individual mindset as opposed to a group mindset. And what goes along with that is that we would also be defined as a guilt-innocent culture. And what that means is we define... uh, right and wrong actions according to whether they make you guilty or if you are innocent. I should say, rather, we our culture doesn't define what's right and wrong on those basis because, of course, the Bible is our source for what is actually right and uh, wrong. But nevertheless, there are what you might call more cultural sins, things that are offensive to the people around you based on the place where you live. And so, in that sense, how our morality works out, whether we do feel a sense of uh, guilt is largely based on our cultural perceptions in many ways. And so what I mean is we evaluate a moral claim on the basis of whether it's right or wrong. So with sex before marriage, the question we answer to determine if it's okay to proceed is, is this right or is it wrong? That's contrasted with the honor shame culture that comprises much of uh, the Eastern world, in which the question is, does this bring honor to my name and my parents' name, my family and my uh, people, or does it bring dishonor and disgrace? And so just the framework in which we answer these questions of morality is quite different between the two cultures. And then again, the way in which sin is exposed is different too, because as in individualistic people in the West, we rely very much 
on our conscience. Does our conscience tell us that this is right or wrong? Can we justify ourselves in this? Or do we condemn ourselves in a certain action based on what our individual conscience in our own mind tells us? On the other hand, with honor shame, sometimes sin means nothing until it is brought into the light, until it is known uh, to the community and exposed for the disgrace that it is. One classic example in the Bible, the story of David and Bathsheba, where David has his infamous uh, sin of adultery and then murder as a cover-up for, uh, for what he uh, did in an unlawful relationship that resulted in Bathsheba becoming pregnant. Over the over however much time passed between when that happened and when he repented, we're never told of his conscience eating away at him. But rather, it's only when the prophet Nathan comes and exposes David's sin directly that we finally do see the sorrow that leads to the repentance of David. Now again, these categories of like individual, collective, guilt, honor, shame, although I've talked about them as if they are two entirely separate categories that belong to very distinct cultures, nevertheless there is some overlap, and while the Bible is certainly written to a people in an honor-shame culture, at least uh, predominantly, it certainly is not shy about using guilt-innocence language. And so the two do overlap. They aren't wholly uh, separate. They're not mutually exclusive. But nevertheless, they are categories that do help us to understand what our uh, preconceived biases may be in the culture we live in, what we are more predisposed to than the other. But now the question we have to ask is, is our guilt-innocence culture sufficient? Does it uh, do the job of convicting of sin that the Bible calls for? Or is there a role of shame and of honor too with that, that we have neglected as the church in the Western world? And I would argue that yes, shame is something we have neglected as a church and we need to rediscover, if you will, its proper usage uh, as a Christian community. See, in Jeremiah alone, alone, in the first eight chapters, I think it is, God rebukes Israel three times on the basis that they do not know how to blush. In other words, all of their sins that they're committing, all of their idolatry, they're doing it with a high hand. They're not ashamed. They no longer have any shame over their atrocious and evil acts they had that they are committing day after day, and they are rebuked for it because such a lack of shame is problematic. There's a reason we have the rhetorical question, have you no shame? Because to have no shame is a bad thing. It means that your ability to discern between what's right and what's wrong has been almost entirely eaten away. People and Christians especially, should feel shame over their sin. But there are ways that we try to cover up this sense of shame regarding sin. And one of the ways I would argue is in our very language that we use to describe sin. Now, of course, uh, there are 
many words that uh, we can have in our vocabulary from Scripture. We could call ourselves wretches in accordance with the hymn Amazing Grace. We could call ourselves vile. We could call ourselves worthless. And you might think these are harsh, but these are directly out of Scripture, out of Nahum and Psalms and Romans. But one word I find today that's the primary word I see used, especially by youth or young adults uh, describing their sin before God, is they call themselves broken. Now you may think, well, what's wrong with that? Aren't we broken? And yes, it is true. But the problem I have is when we use that word in isolation from any other uh, descriptors of our sin, because when we just think of ourselves as broken people, it really, I believe, contributes to this victim mindset because if you're broken, you've been broken by someone. It's more about how you've been hurt by the world, hurt by others, and how that maybe has led you to lash out. But perhaps it's a little understandable given the uh, pain that you've experienced. The term of brokenness, even if it's accurate to some extent, in itself doesn't reflect the fact that we are not just uh, victims of the sin of others, but we are criminals ourselves before God. We are the rebels. We are the ones who have done the breaking. For example, I was having a conversation with a friend one time, I think about a year ago now, and that conversation actually started out as a discussion over the issue of woman in ministry, woman pastors, just because of what the topic in chapel happened to be that day. But then uh, following our discussion of that issue, the conversation grew into more talking about this person's uh, personal life and her personal uh, struggles, especially uh, devotionally and in walking with God. And And I was trying to discern what the root issue may be as I was listening to her. And Eventually, uh, just based on uh, what she was sharing, I said to her, it sounds like you don't believe God is worthy. And, you know, she actually agreed. And she said, yeah, I kind of just see him more as a buddy figure. So, of course, uh, going all in with this relationship term of God being our friend and Therefore, almost imaging God as just a buddy who supports me uh, through all through all of my trouble. And it makes no mention of either the fatherhood of God or his kinship or his uh, lordship. And so there's a lot uh, missing there. And so, of course, that was a serious issue. Uh, but one other thing I do find is that if someone doesn't believe God is worthy, they often believe that they themselves are. And so from there, I asked this person... The Bible says that we deserve to die for our sin. Do you believe that? And again, to her credit, she was honest and she said, no. And what she did say is like, I know I'm broken. And so there again, you have that issue of this language of brokenness doesn't accurately portray our guilt before God. The fact that we are rebels who are deserving of death and hell. Brokenness covers up the shame that should go with our sin. And so we've got to recapture a holistic uh, vocabulary to describe 
what our sin is before God. Because in order to confess our sin, it's been said often before that to confess means to agree. And so we, we agree with God that our sin is sin. That's as horrible as he says it is, and that it deserves the penalty he says it does. That's what true confession means. And so we've got to uh, recover a true and robust and holistic definition of sin. And when we do, necessarily, it will bring on shame, just because of what sin is and uh, how it does hurt others and dishonor others and... uh, pays no respect to God or to his people. So shame is certainly going to have a biblical role when it comes to dealing with our sin. I do want to give one caveat first, though, before we get into what the Bible says is its role, and say that this shame that I'm talking about, and I believe that scripture talks about, is meant to be expressed over unrepentant sin, over true guilt. So not when you haven't actually done something wrong or not over a past sin that you have actually repented of. That's not the shame that the Bible calls for. See, in 2 Corinthians 7, the Bible makes this differentiation between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to life. It's like, that's the good shame. You've sinned, you now feel shame over it, and that drives you to repentance, to seek God, and to seek restoration with others. That's good. But there's a worldly kind of sorrow, which you can say maybe acts in two ways. In the one sense, it may just be this kind of sorrow, like, oh man, I got caught. But you aren't actually ashamed over what you yourself have done. But another kind of worldly Sorrow, I would say, is one that keeps dredging up the past, that keeps the cycle of guilt playing over and over in your heart and mind and refuses you any rest, any assurance of the possibility possibility that you actually have been forgiven, that your shame has been covered. But I just want to remind you that 1 John 3 says that if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. So hold on to that hope and hold on to that truth. But when we are dealing with our day-by-day sin and sin in the present rather than repented sin that's in the past, we have to acknowledge the biblical role that shame should play in it. And so the first passage we're going to look at today is in 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. So this is what the text says there. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? And so the issue that Paul is tackling in this text is that the 
the Corinthians are taking their disputes once against one another in front of unbelievers and letting unbelievers decide uh, their cases, which is problematic in two sense. One, it again gives unbelievers an opportunity to blasphemy because look at these Christians who just can't get along with one another and are always at each other's throats. That's not right. But secondly, Paul also uses it to shame them in the sense like, really, are you all fools? Is there no one who can actually, is actually capable of judging these cases? These are trivial disputes and you have no one who is able to discern who's right and who's wrong, where payback should be paid and where harm should be undone. Such actions of the Corinthians were worthy of shame and Paul was not afraid to explicitly shame them for it. He said in verse 5, I say this to shame you. And so what we see in this text is shame being used as an active motive. That is, shame is being explicitly brought up as a way to confront the wrongful actions that are going on among the Corinthians. There are things that are worthy of shame, and it's a problem if we don't feel shame over such things. But today, I highly doubt that you're going to go to a church where the pastor is going to explicitly say to his congregation, shame on you for this. We do not like such assertiveness in preaching these days, and to us, it almost appears as wholly unloving, and you might even say, hypocritical because the pastor isn't perfect either. But even if the pastor isn't going to explicitly explicitly sh- say shame on you for this, we don't even like when sermons are direct, when they are directed at us. And we see that in the language that uh, many pastors use when they'll talk about uh, sin and struggles with sin in the language of we. It's like, this is like, we've all gone through this. This is our struggle, yeah, I've been there too. And the lack of him saying, you, you have this problem, you need to deal with it. We don't like sermons that point the finger at us. We like sermons that bring us in for the group hug. But now, while it's not always out of place for a pastor to offer encouragement, certainly, or even to uh, discuss his own struggles within a particular area. Absolutely, those things are good. But that doesn't mean that we dismiss as improper or irrelevant sermons that do point the finger at us, that confront issues directly in the congregants. Because sometimes there are things that congregants do that are worthy of shame and such direct speech is necessary to stir up that sense of shame so that they will be driven to repentance. Now, maybe you say, well, but isn't it the Holy Spirit's job to conviction and the pastor just, you know, explain the text and then let the Holy Spirit take it from there? Well, again, in an ultimate sense, yes, but it's also the Holy Spirit's uh, job to enlighten the mind so that they can understand Scripture. That doesn't stop him from using men to explain and make clear what the text of Scripture says. Even while we may acknowledge the Holy Spirit's ultimate role in these things, we don't want to negate the practical means by which he does such things. And often the way in which he will stir up shame or bring conviction over sin is through the confrontation 
uh, that his servants bring to others. Galatians chapter 2, where Paul confronts Peter over his hypocrisy for not eating with the Gentiles after certain men come from James. It's a very public confrontation, but it's used to convict uh, Peter over his actions being inconsistent with the gospel that he preaches. And so we've got to recognize that the Holy Spirit doesn't just work in the individual conscience. He works in the context of a community and will often use his servants in order to uh, bring conviction, to bring confrontation over sin, and to stir up the sense of shame as his means of bringing people to repentance. Now, I know we would all prefer it if he just worked in our conscience, but quite honestly, sometimes... The conscience is not always reliable, and but your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. So I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit isn't reliable, but your conscience is a God-given gift that, when it's in tune with God's Word and with God's law, uh, can tell you what's right and wrong. But we're capable of ignoring our consciences. We're capable of searing our consciences so that we can no longer really feel any sense of guilt or sense of shame over what's right or wrong. And so sometimes this public rebuke is necessary. And I mean, look at what 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 says. I mean, And I mean, this is dealing with elders, but it certainly has a relevant principle for us. And the text says, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. And so we see there Paul instructing for a very public rebuke to happen should uh, someone in spiritual leadership, in this case, be caught in sin. And the purpose is so that the others themselves may fear searing or, or may fin sinning. Because no, one's, no one wants to be caught or reproved in public. The shame of such an event is meant to dissuade you from engaging in having to face that same penalty. This fear of shame is used in scripture as an active motive in order to keep God's children pure. Now maybe you'll say, well, what about 1 John 4.18? Doesn't the Bible say that perfect love drives out fear and so we shouldn't uh, be afraid in this sense? And of course, yes, scripture does say that. But what it also says again in that verse is that uh, it's because fear has to do with punishment that perfect love drives out fear. And so when we are confirmed in God's love and we have assurance that he loves us, then we no longer need to fear falling into his condemnation. We no longer need to fear that our actions are going to uh, drive us away into hell. So yes, there's no need for fear in that sense. But nevertheless, perfect love, if we actually do have it in us, is also going to keep us obedience on the one hand one hand. So if we walk in obedience, again, there's no uh, basis even for either legitimate or illegitimate fear. But though we are saved from the ultimate consequence of facing uh, God's wrath in hell, that doesn't negate the reality that God disciplines his children this day and that uh, for our daily struggle with sin while we remain on earth as we are being sanctified by him, we do and should have legitimate fear of the discipline we may face for such actions. Not because we fear rejection by God or rejection by his community, but simply because 
just as the fear of death will keep us from running, running off a cliff, so also this fear of facing shame is meant to keep us living in the abundant life God has called us to. And there is no place for unrepentant sin in this abundant life. So yes, according to scripture, fear the shame that comes uh, with sin and the rebuke that may uh, result in and keep yourselves pure. Now we've kind of talked about the role of pastors and their preaching with this and then also the uh, role of rebuking elders too. But what about you as an individual? Is there a role that you play in using this tool of active shame in order to keep your friends or your Christian brothers and sisters away from sin too? And the answer, according to scripture, is yes, there is. There's this verse, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, and it comes uh, on the heels of Paul giving instructions and warnings to those who are idle among the Thessalonians. They're not working, but they're actually just spending all their time uh, gossiping. And he says, you know, if they won't work, neither shall they eat. So be hard at work. And don't be lazy. But then this is what he says in verse 14, again of chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. And he does say in the verse after that, Yet yeah, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So this action or this choice to not associate with those who are in disobedience to scripture isn't meant in order as a way for you to treat them as an enemy. It's actually as a way you in love can admonish your fellow believer to start walking in step with the spirit, start walking in step with scripture, obey the commands we are given here. So as individual believers, when we do see someone who is walking in disobedience to what the Bible says and will not stand correction when they are warned that they need to stop, the Bible does say, don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. And the ultimate hope of this disassociation is that it won't be permanent, but that through this disassociation they will come to feel shame for what they've done, and then come to repentance in order that they may find restoration in the church and in the Christian community. So we all, from pastors to even just us who sit in the pews and go about our work lives day after day, we need to start taking sin a lot more seriously, and we need to be keeping each other accountable as we walk in this world, in order that we may all shine as a genuine light for Christ. So those texts deal with what I've called shame as an active motive, shame being explicitly brought up in order to move people to repentance. But now I want to look at one passage that deals with shame as a passive motive, something that uh, should be in our minds that we're always thinking of that should, again, motivate our actions for right and not for wrong. And so the passage is in Luke chapter 14, and we'll read verses 7 to 11, and it's just a little parable that uh, ties directly into these topics of honor and shame. And this is what the text says. When he 
that is Jesus, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So again, to confront the actions his uh, the guests at this banquet are taking, Jesus uses this parable to say, if you want honor, this is how you go about it. Actually take the lowest place, and then the guests will honor you before others and take you uh, to a better seat. But if you try to take honor for yourself, it will end up in shame. As humiliated, you'll be asked to leave your place for a person more distinguished. And so we see that, you know, the pursuit of honor isn't actually anti-biblical. The point is that you do it on God's terms. And so also, kind of the whole point of this episode is that shame isn't anti-biblical. It's not anti-Christian, but there is a proper and biblical way to go about it. We also engage shame on God's terms. And so the fear of shame is a way Jesus actually uses to motivate his followers to obey the principle of being humble before God and trusting in God to exalt them and to lift them up at the proper time. And so, let's not dismiss honor and shame, but let's engage them on God's terms. Now finally, as a wrap-up note, I want to deal with this issue of when we struggle with being ashamed of what God says is good. And this may be more serious than we think because it does say in Scripture, uh, Jesus says, that if we are ashamed of him, he will be shamed at us at his coming. And now I know sometimes we're afraid of speaking to others about Jesus, or maybe even me as a pastor, I'm afraid to tell people that I'm planning to be uh, a pastor because we fear the potential shame that may come from not being able to uh, answer someone else's questions or or we're afraid of the rejection we may face and the shame that comes with that, or the mocking, and again, the shame that comes with that. And so we fear the shame that others may uh, put on us for the sake of us being Christians and for us not being as knowledgeable or as holy as we should be. But this shame has no legitimate basis. Why are we ashamed as if we're not the ones who hold the truth of life? Why do we try to rationalize away the hard texts of Scripture as if they aren't the eternal words of God that are going to outlast you and I? We lack shame for sin, and yet we're ashamed of God, of His Word, and of the life He has called us to. This is not right. Sin should ashamed us so that we repent 
and then find the life, forgiveness, and restoration that God offers. And then in terms of our Christian walk, we ought to walk in all boldness and confidence, knowing that we do hold the truth in life, of life, that God has set us as a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We ought to shine this light of Christ because there is power in it. So let's recover a biblical view of shame and return to that truth. Thank you for listening to the Return to Truth podcast. If you're interested in getting updates on episodes or if there's a question that's been put to you that you would like me to discuss on here, you can find me on Instagram at Return to Truth Podcast or on Twitter at podcast underscore return. Until next time, let's heed and join in the call to return to the truth.